And I remember an investor who came, who, you know, we were on call for some time and he's like, yeah, we're going to do this deal. We're going to do this deal. And eventually, I think two, three weeks later, I'm like, yo, like, where's the wire at? Haven't you like signed the safe? And he says, hey man, look, there's this COVID thing that's happening. Your business will never survive. They reached out randomly and said, hey, can we please change all of our rides from 10 p.m. to 6 p.m.? Now, firstly, it's weird that they'd call us because you can just change it on the platform. And so Optimus says, sure, like we'll change everything to 6 p.m. All the rides get fulfilled. And as the last ride is completed, they fire everyone and the company shuts down. I did not know whether to laugh, to cry, to celebrate, or wake up from this dream that I thought I was having. What's up everybody, my name is Benjamin Fernandez. I'm super excited today. We're here in Dakar, Senegal, all the way from South Africa is where our guest comes from. His name is Velani Boweni, and he's the co-founder and CEO of Lula. So we're gonna jump in to look at what Lula does. They're modernizing transportation across Africa, starting with South Africa, where they enable people, businesses, uh, to transport their people around directly to their homes uh, and, and offices, but also other places beyond that, such as the airport and things like that. Uh, Vilani also holds many different titles. He was recently on the board of Johannesburg uh, government, uh, where he would look at the city of Johannesburg and advise them that way. He was also Forbes 30 under 30, uh, one of the many accolades that he holds. Uh, he also values his faith, and we're going to jump into that today uh, in the discussion and what that means for him and how he's built his business to where it is today. Vilani, karibu sana in Swahili, as we say. Thank you so much for having me, Benji. Um, I don't know how to say thank you in... Uh, how many languages do you speak? In? <laughs> we have 11 languages in South Africa. Okay. Um, so my language is uh, Tsonga. 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 Yeah. Uh, and so we would say Nakensa. Nakensa. Yeah. Uh, you gotta like stretch it out. Yeah, yeah, you gotta stretch it out, you know. So Nakensa. Speaking uh, of South Africa, you know, that, that's the home of, you know, I'm a piano. Yeah, right? yeah. It's the home of, you know... <laughs> So, you know, what we should actually be doing is filming a behind the scenes when a South African song comes on and sees this guy like jump all the way here in Senegal. This guy is like, hey, yo, this is my people. This is my, this is my song. This is my people. Who is your favorite I'm a piano artist? Well, it has to be Kabza Desmond. Kabza. Yeah, Kabza Desmond is, uh, he's the king. Yeah? He's the, the king. king. He's the king. He's the king. Wow. Uh, yeah, he's he's had hit after hit after hit, and mm. I think he's got the formula right. Mm. Um, obviously, with uh, Ama Piano, the signature instrument mm. is the log drum, mm. and so I think he's the king of the keys and the log drum. Wow! So yeah, I love Gabza. That's the one who sang Asibe Happy, right? Yes, he, he he did that one as well. Okay. Um, one of my favorite songs of his is um, uh, Flip, which is uh, the, the one song that he did really well. Mm. Um, Sure. I listen to so much I'm a piano. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of jams that I like. I mean, there's mm. a song called Adiwele. Mm. There's a song called Uzozi Sola. Yeah. So you're going to um, show us how to like, Oh, yeah. Dance I'm, I'm, I'm going to show you how to do it. Yeah. I'm going to show you how to do guys, it. Guys, if you want exclusive tips on how to dance, uh, I'm a piano. Follow Vilani. Uh, <laughs> I heard he even hosted at the office, too. So if you guys work at Lula and, and aren't seeing this, let me know because like, I want to make sure that I, I see these exclusive. Uh, videos of uh, Velani dancing and teaching the whole squad um, how to move. 
he, he saw me dance. He's like, bro, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> uh, you know, I wasn't blessed in that department, but, you know, we move. Um, literally, no pun intended. Yeah. Um, tell me about moving with Lula. Yeah, so, so Lula was really founded on the basis of, um, you know, without access to transportation, you cannot access economic opportunities. And without those opportunities, you cannot solve poverty, unemployment, and inequality. Now, as you know, the continent of Africa is growing rapidly. In fact, mm-hmm. 2025 will have more than 100 cities with more than a million people. Mm-hmm. But we don't have that infrastructure to move, mm-hmm. um, to move that people. Um, and so really mm-hmm. what we decided is instead of trying to build massive roads and public transit infrastructure, mm-hmm. let's just organize existing assets mm-hmm. and make them more efficient. And that's what the platform is really seeking to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you build a marketplace for, for transportation, right? Where you have a network of shuttles and buses, over a thousand, I'm understanding, yeah. across five cities uh, in South Africa. And you enable businesses to connect uh, with their people uh, and transport them around uh, to work, from work, uh, to other locations as well. Yeah. Now, somebody might ask who's listening on this call, wait, Velani and Benjamin, I don't get how that works. Like, what's the difference between that and Uber? Like, why wouldn't I, if I'm in South Africa, just use Uber to get around? Yeah. So so first thing is our, our business model is primarily B2B. Mm. Uh, so we target enterprises, whether it be large corporations, medium-sized businesses, schools, NGOs, sports clubs. We really target the B2B place. The second thing is that we really emphasize larger vehicles. So whilst your Ubers and Bolts may do anything with four seats up to six seats, we start from six seats up to 22 seats and everything and beyond, as well as a fleet of luxury vehicles. And in the ride hailing industry, your on-demand players are usually about the cheapest ride and the Mm. quickest ride, whereas in our industry, we're really about the most reliable ride and the most stable ride. So a business, if they're sending Benji from Kenya to Cape Town, they're not really worried about how quickly a vehicle will come to pick you up or how cheap it will be. They just want to know that it will show up and Mm. that it will be of quality. So those are some of the key differentiators about our business. And ultimately, we try and emphasize shared mobility. Mm. So Lula is really the platform where businesses want to move a lot of people. So at least three, four people at one go, as opposed to an Uber or Bolt, where it's used about one person on a single ride. Mm-hmm. So let's take a step back. Uh, I want to hear about Velani. Young Velani, like running the streets in South Africa. Tell me about young Velani. Yeah. So young Velani was... When you grew uh, up, what's the background? Yeah. Yeah. So young Velani was always a curious cat. Mm. Um, very, very inquisitive, asking questions nonstop. I grew up in Johannesburg. I currently reside in Cape Town. Um, I was born to a family of three, uh, well, three siblings, or myself, my brother and my sister. I'm really blessed to have a mom and dad who are married uh, for over 33 years now. I had two sets of wonderful grandparents who really influenced me a great deal. So the key thing was a education. We've always been taught to love our education and travel quite extensively. And secondly, it was faith, right? So having our faith as a guiding principle to what makes us who we are. And ultimately, the fourth principle was service to others. So really, everything that I've done to this point in my life has always been based on using my knowledge that I've gathered over the years, really emphasizing the values from my faith. And thirdly, just focusing on being of service to people. And that really is what brought me to where I am right now. Um, in fact, the story goes that I was uh, set to become an aeronautical engineer, mm. but my father asked me a question uh, as I was 17, 18. He's like, what's the one thing you think of when you go to bed and when you wake up? And I asked myself, okay, sure, what could that be? And after much deliberation, the answer was, why do people suffer? Mm. And 
I immediately knew that I cannot study aeronautical engineering because that would be so self-serving. Uh, and then I decided that I would study a Bachelor of Commerce and major in philosophy, politics, and economics to just figure out why do people suffer. If I get that answer, I can build things that can help people flourish and enable less suffering. So young Velani was really a curious cat, family orientated, built around service, strong in his faith and really committed to the betterment of people. So from there to university, um, to Lula, tell me about that. Yeah, so I think with uh, Lula, the original concept began when I was in my final year of my undergrad. Okay. Uh, this was 2014 at the University of Cape Town. I was sleeping in my apartment, snoring really loud, uh, and I woke up uh, and I, my apartment overlooked Main Road, an observatory. And if you understand Main Road in Cape Town, uh, five o'clock is peak traffic. And I just looked outside and something whispered in my ear that this has to be organized. I just remember that word, organized. And I thought, well, we have to figure out a way to better organize transportation to make it more accessible to people. And so started writing, doing my research. My background at that point had heavily been involved in um, you know, nonprofit, some logistics, but historically through payments, uh, through some family investments we had made. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really got writing this idea and thought, you know, I'm young, I'm dumb, I'm foolish, let's go figure this out and get organized. Um, and really then decided to solve the problem in a B2G model. Yeah. So how could you B2G connect? B2G is business to government. Business to government, correct. Yeah. yeah, so business to government model where we try to integrate buses, trains, taxis, cabs, whatever, and put them in one platform. But that ultimately failed after four years. So, wow, failed after four years. Yeah. So you started this fresh from uni. Yes. And how do you even get the mental confidence fresh from uni, you know, 20, 21 years old, like to like, okay, cool, you know what? I'm not going to, you see all your friends go working at, you know, because you study economics, you know, probably banking jobs or so on. And you're like, you know what, I'm actually going to start a, are you from a family of entrepreneurs or like did people push you or encourage you to even look at it? I think, I think the one thing that was very, very clear uh, in my relationship with my family is mm-hmm. that they had a great sense of trust in my ability to uh, be responsible with whatever was put in my hands. Mm. Um, and this started way back when I was in grade one. Um, teachers used to send me to go to their bags and get money and go buy stuff in the tuck shop. And I'd always come back with change and it would be accurate change. And that taught me a principle about integrity. So my family had always had a lot of faith in my ability to be a good steward of resources. So my parents really thought that, look, he's young enough to try something. And if it doesn't work, he can always fall back on other jobs that may be available within their network. The second thing is that, yes, my, my late grandfather was an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. came from abject poverty, built himself up from absolutely nothing to eventually listing his company in 1994 wow. in South Africa. So I always had that uh, belief that genetically I could go from having absolutely nothing to build something meaningful. Um, both my parents are involved in business. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad's a doctor, my mom's a teacher, but they all eventually moved into business. But ultimately what also happened is because, you know, you don't start a company and then you know everything and everything is like panning out. I studied two more degrees after my undergrad whilst doing Lula on the side. And I think eventually I thought, well, this thing has some legs. Um, I'm literally going to risk it all and take the jump. Mm. Um, And of course, when I took the jump, I thought I was there. And in hindsight, I realized just how far I was from actually having a business. Mm -hmm. So you said you worked on this business to government model for four years. Correct. And then you mentioned that it failed. Yeah. And then you had to pivot the business. Correct. Talk to me about pivoting. Sure. So to paint the picture, 
So around mid-2018, um, I'd finished studying uh, the, the three degrees that I'd done before that. By the way, um, um, Vilani has more degrees than a protractor. <laughs> <laughs> this man. Um, so I'd finished studying. Um, this whole B2G thing wasn't really making sense. We had like operators who were signing up. They were going to commit, but kept getting us delayed. We had outsourced our tech. Things weren't working. And I just ran out of money. And then a group of friends of mine who were all doctors um, came and said, hey, Vals, you're the only one who understands anything financial. And, you know, we started working. So here's some money to try again. I said, OK. Um, got into a startup bootcamp program. That helped us pivot because, again, when you start a company, you think you know everything or you think you have it figured out. But when you go through programs like Startup Bootcamp, YC, you really get the, that kind of framework to think about things differently. So B2G never worked, right? We had commitments. We had a way of understanding things, but just the way the lay of the land worked, that was never really going to take off. And so we thought, let's do a B2B2C model. And at that point, the whole view was, hey, let's take all these vans, create these routes that people and companies can offer to their employees and individuals can pay per seat. We thought that would have been a really, really attractive uh, solution because it came out about 80% cheaper than an Uber ride. Yeah. But the trick is the economics behind that is you only start to make profit once at least three people mm. are on a ride. And so if you have two people on a ride, you can't tell those two people like, hey, we're not going to honor the ride because we need one more person. And that's part and parcel of why carpooling in, in general sense doesn't always work out. So that just did not make sense because we had to end up subsidizing empty seats. And one of our competitors in the market has had that challenge. I won't mention mm. the name, but that is one of the key challenges about having to pay mm. for rides that are empty. And so we quickly decided to move away from B2B to C mm. uh, and really focus on our B2B. Ultimately, another component of that is when you're doing any direct-to-consumer, mm. especially in the South African context, mm. um, your platform then becomes a lot more susceptible to crime. Yeah. So if an individual books a van and wants to go to a township at midnight, mm. um, you know, they could be up to no good. And mm. so in the B2B, it's a more controlled, more safe environment mm. and act actively protects our drivers. Mm -hmm. And you've signed up 250 businesses now uh, in the B2B space across five cities uh, in South Africa. Um, tell me about, you're going through a pivot journey. Now, many people on your team might not understand the decision to pivot or might not support it. They might be like, you know what, Vilani, I joined Lula because I wanted to do B2G stuff, and now we're moving to B2B2C, and then now we're moving again to B2C, uh, B2B, um, and it might be emotionally draining for them or frustrating. How did you navigate those conversations with your team and say, you know what, guys, this is what I think we should do? Mm. Yeah, I think in 2019 especially, 2019 was really where we had, were really trying to strike the balance between B2B2C and B2B or just B2B. Mm. And t people in my team were quite vocal about why are we doing these things? Why does it really matter? And for me, I really had to emphasize that we need to fall in love with the problem mm. and not the solution. Because mm. if you fall in love with the solution, you may miss out on an incredible opportunity to solve the problem differently. And so having to repeat myself and say, this is why we started. This mm. is the overall mission. Mm. That whether you do it in B2G, B2B2C, or B2B, as long as you are still sticking to that mission of providing access to economic opportunities through transportation, you're still sticking with the DNA of the business. So having to remind people about why? the why we began was super important. 
as well as also understanding what is the credibility mm. or the merit of this new approach. Mm. So having to tell the guy that, hey, listen, under B2B2C, mm. we're losing money with every single ride. Mm. We're not, you know, we, we can't afford to keep subsidizing empty seats. Yeah. Um, and taking through the B2B model, say, well, look, sales cycles may be longer, but once you nail the business, it's recurring revenue yeah. and it helps us grow. So that's been how we navigate the conversations primarily. Yeah. So this is 2019. Lulus fundraised, raised a seed round. Uh, Vilani is one of the only uh, black South African men who have raised over a million dollars during this time period as all this is going on. And then 2020 happens. Uh, your business is in transportation and the pandemic happens. And South Africa has this massive lockdown and your entire business relies on people moving uh, and the lockdown happens. What happens to the business then? Man. So I could talk about this for a while. And I think, I think when I reflect on COVID-19 and our business, I'm reminded of a poem called Footprints in the Sand. Mm. I don't know if you've ever read that poem, but if you get time, do check that Footprints in the Sand poem out. But I'll take you to the beginning of covid uh, or, or rather, let's say when this COVID thing started brewing in China, I was mm. going to the East and like trying to figure out if it was going to hit home. And I remember an investor who came, who, you know, we were on call for some time and he's like, yeah, we're going to do this deal. We're going to do this deal. And eventually, I think two, three weeks later, I'm like, yo, like, where's the wire? Haven't you like signed the safe? And he says, hey, man, look, there's this COVID thing that's happening your business will never survive. Once this COVID thing's here, no companies will ever need to move. So you met this investor who was about to invest money into your business and the pandemic happens and you're a transportation business in South Africa and they say, your business will never survive. What is your reaction to that? Well, my first reaction was, um, firstly, complete shock because... I was waiting to complete payroll. Um, we were running out of cash. And I told the team, hey, listen, don't worry. We're good. We're good. And now I have to go back on my word. And not just go back on my word, but have to tell them the inevitable that, hey, look, we're running out of money. Um, and so that was quite great shock. Um, I had great disbelief. In fact, I was slightly pissed off that someone has the audacity to tell me my business will never survive. Obviously, by the grace of God, we survived and did not just survive, but we thrived actually in that period. Um, and I also want to single out that whilst one investor, prospective investor said no, uh, one of our existing investors just happened to be walking in the office and he looked at me and he said, hey, man, like something's wrong. So I'm like, yeah, man, He's like, talk to me. I'm like, I'm not going to make payroll this month. And, and uh, he then said to me, oh, OK, like how much are you short of? So I told him the figure asked me for my bank details and in his personal capacity he wired me the money by the time he walked out the office um that was actually Janae Duplessis from uh, Launch Africa Ventures um and I'll never forget him for that casually walked in and gave us a lifeline um uh, you know subsequently I I went back to Johannesburg for the lockdown spent some time uh, praying and fasting with my family um really making our intentions clear to the almighty on what we want to happen. And I remember early June, 2020, 
I, I got a call from Demi and Girish from Total Energies Ventures. Uh, and almost serendipitous to what the investor who pulled out said, they were like, look, this COVID thing's going on, but we believe that the world will normalize and what you're working on will truly make a difference. So we're going to invest in the round. Wow. And by God's grace, their, their funds flowed. I was able to, you know, get, get, uh, get, you know, the round closed. We had follow on from Edge Growth, from Launch Africa, a Harambians Prosperity Fund. They all came in and, it's weird because it reminds me of uh, a scripture in the Bible that you know, loosely says that the stone that the builder refused became the cornerstone. Mm -hmm. And I think that story about being knocked down and someone having the audacity to tell me that your business will never survive eventually became a business that actually grew 5x during the pandemic. Wow. Uh, we launched a SaaS version of the platform to help existing transport companies. Mm -hmm. We did a delivery play mm -hmm. in the interim and by God's grace, we made it out. So 2020 happens, you made it out, and then the business continues to grow. What, as you've grown the business, you've hired many people across many different cities in South Africa, and what is your biggest lessons that you've seen yourself learn about bringing people onto your business? Yeah, I think, I think people will always be the most complicated part of a business. Mm. Uh, because you can't control people mm. and people are complicated. So there's a couple of things mm. I've learned in the journey. Uh, the first is don't hire your friends. Don't hire your friends. <laughs> don't hire your friends. Okay, why? Well, chances are your friendship won't survive, mm. especially if it doesn't work out. Mm. Um, so don't hire your friends. Uh, secondly, don't hire your friends' friends uh, because your friends' credibility will suffer if that does not work out. And ultimately, please always do, do your due diligence. So if Benji refers someone to me, just because Benji referred that person to me does not mean that that person is a good fit. Mm -hmm. And also does not mean that you're obligated to give that person a job. Mm -hmm. right? So really just watch how you, you, know, you, you go about hiring. And really, it's really important to hire people on merit mm -hmm. rather than, you know, this person worked at this company before, mm -hmm. so they must be good. Uh, and I'd also say hire people who are better than you. Mm -hmm not necessarily people who think they are better than you, mm. right? So the devil is in the detail, understanding the merits of, 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 of hiring. Um, and if you can use recruitment agencies, the fees may seem high initially, but it's actually better than the cost of having to let someone go. Mm. Listen to the South African market because you can't just fire someone. Mm. Um, I think, again, on the people side, uh, it's very important to make it clear what your expectation is of the person when hiring. Um, you really, in your interview process, want to use as many practical examples mm -hmm. of the job that this person would have to do rather than just appealing to where they come from. Look, if I, if I could tell you about how many bad apples I've had mm -hmm. uh, building this business, we'd be here for hours. Yeah. Um, but if essentially, you know, being clear with people, mm -hmm. having to repeat yourself what's important, having OKRs, which is objectives and key results, having metrics in which people can be measured on mm -hmm. really, really helps. Um, I've had incidences where some people work really hard, but because someone else maybe came from a big name brand, mm -hmm. you maybe treat them better. And, and the people can see. Mm. People can see that, hey, because someone worked at Uber or Bolt, mm -hmm. you're treating them better because this person who's just out of university and putting in the hard work does not have that reputation. It's really important to, you know, treat people equally and just make sure that you're measuring them on what matters. Sorry. I, I'm saying this because I'm really open 
with the mistakes I've made. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really want to share that with the world and the viewers so that they don't make the mistakes I've made. Because the one thing we don't have enough of is time. Um, so those are some of the key lessons I've learned dealing you, with people. Your first one, you said, don't hire your friends. Did you lose a friend um, during your process at Lula? Definitely. Definitely. What happened? I think, I think it was very hard to separate the friendship from the business. One of the things you'll know as an entrepreneur is you have to have a high resilience threshold. You have to be able to deal with a lot of setbacks and you have to hold people accountable, no matter how hard the accountability is. And sometimes when you're friends with some t- someone, it's very hard to say, hey, Benji, why didn't you submit this report? Or why didn't you get this marketing plan out on time? And you could think, oh, but we're friends, we were chilling and you know, so on and so forth. And it's just that, that uh, ability to separate that, hey, I'm your boss in this setting mm. and not your bestie mm. uh, is something that some people struggle with. Mm. Um, and also when we hired the said person, it was almost like, hey, my friend's looking for a job. I have no one else to really appeal to. Um, sure, he's good for it. Um, and obviously, we, I had no experience. Mm. Um, and I learned the hard way that, you know, when this person wanted certain things and I could not give that, it almost seemed like I was unreasonable. It even got to a point where someone said, wait, but I'm sure, like, if you don't have the money, maybe your family has the money. Like, mm. oh, well, h- hang on, it's not their business in that sense. Mm. You know, so, I mean, I wasn't earning a salary. This person wanted a big salary. It's like, it's just complicated. Mm. Um, and we amicably parted ways, but, you know, it's not like we said, hey, we're not friends anymore, but we've hardly spoken since that day. Uh, and we used to speak every single day, even prior to working together. So it was one of those things where you lost a friend and sad about it. Um, but I think in that process, it also revealed certain things about who I thought was my friend. Um, but again, in all humility, there's always three sides to the story, mm-hmm. my side, his or her side. And then the, let's call it the official side. So yeah. I say that with all humility. Yeah. Mm. So uh, you said, you, the, just to repeat, you said that the key five things would be don't hire your friends. Don't hire your friends' friends. Always do due diligence on the people you're trying to hire and bring onto the team. Um, you know, then hire people who are better than you um, or smarter than you in certain aspects. And then don't just go. Uh, so I think that was the, the one based on merit, right? And I forgot the fifth one. Um, you have to have like OKRs be able to yeah, measure people's so, performance. So what's not measured can't be improved, and so really make sure that expectations are set very clearly from the beginning. Correct. Right. So let's move on uh, to your personal life. So building is hard. Um, so many complications of building, but you're also human at the end of the day. Right. What keeps you grounded? I think. I think it's really important to understand that to be able to build a business, there is a certain degree of luck, not just the opportunity I identify, but the ability to mobilize resources and to have the courage to pursue this opportunity. Knowing that not everyone can do that and that I'm fortunate enough to have found myself in a situation where I'm able helps me understand that this is more of a privilege and an honor rather than a divine right. Mm -hmm. So that's what keeps me grounded on part one. Part two is 
again, as I said, my personal mantra has always been serve people and solve problems. I'm very open about the fact that I do not have all the resources and I do not have all the skills required to build this business and the one that, that I'll do afterwards. And so everyone who works with me, everyone who's invested in me, I really believe that I owe them a debt of gratitude. Um, and so that keeps me grounded in the sense that I'm not here by some divine order or by entitlement. It's because of, you know, the faith that people have put in me, put in the business and put in the people, as well as the opportunity that we have in this market to serve. And that, that's what keeps me grounded. I think I've also seen a lot of failure, a lot of setbacks that even when I see victories, I don't let that get to my head. Earlier when we were chatting, you told me about one day in your life when you were building this business that was one of the craziest days of your life. Recently, what happened? Well, Benji, you're taking me back to a time that I think I really questioned if everything I was going through is actually real. Mm. In fact, so 24th of May, 2022. Last year. Literally Last year. one year ago this week. Literally. Literally a year and three days ago. And we're in the middle of our pre-series A round. And an investor had committed, got IC approval, signed the documents. Um, and they'd done all of that by end of March. And we kept wondering, like, hey, when's the wire going to come in? And so for April, I managed to get some money from some friends, cover payroll. And May payroll, so in South Africa, May payroll is the 25th for most of us. Payroll was coming about, and I had to get about a million rand, which is about, at the time, $60,000, $70,000. I was calling friends. Hey, man, can you please borrow me 10K, 5K, 20K, maxing out credit cards? because I had no idea when this investor would wire the money. And so I'm sweating buckets because I don't want to tell my team that, hey, listen, <laughs> you know, our number is up. And I recall that I went to bed, I prayed, I said, Lord, you know, <laughs> you're faithful, please cover my back. I remember waking up the morning of the 25th, prepared to tell the team like, look, <laughs> we may have to delay this. And of course, you can't call the investor and say, hey, where's the money at? Because yeah. we're out of cash, because that might just scare them and say, hey, look, yeah. we're out. I remember picking up my phone <laughs> and that, that, that notification for the bank came through. It was quite a large sum of money. I, I actually took a screenshot of how many zeros were there. <laughs> and I was like, yes, I can finally make payroll. And I was like, so excited. Told my co-founder, told my senior man, like, hey, we're good to process payroll. We did that like, successfully. And I was really excited. But at the same time, our biggest customer called our operations team. This is the same day. Same day. Couple of hours later. Same day. Couple of hours. So payroll ran by like 10 a.m., 12, 12 p.m. Payroll ran. We're all super duper happy. Like, cool. Like our biggest problem, you know, has been resolved. And... Our biggest customer at the time, they were a delivery business. We serviced over 28 of their warehouses across South Africa doing rides for their employees, growing at 30% month on month. This customer paid on time, literally a unicorn opportunity. They reached out randomly and said, hey, can we please change all of our rides from 10 p.m. to 6 p.m.? Now, 
firstly, it's weird that they'd call us because you can just change it on the platform. And so Optimus says, sure, like we'll change everything to 6 p.m. All the rides get fulfilled. And as the last ride is completed, they fire everyone and the company shuts down. Wow. Shuts down. They file for voluntary liquidation. Millions of rands of revenue owed to us. And we haven't received any of that money over a year later. As they went to liquidation, I think maybe 2 or 3% of the outstanding invoices were paid to us, which is even lower than our take rate. Um, and it was hard because we're in the middle of a round. Our revenue is growing rapidly. And this customer at the time, I think, concentrated about 60% of our monthly recurring revenue. Wow. You're in the middle of a raise. You're growing rapidly. And then all of a sudden, and you have to dig deep into your soul and pick yourself up and encourage your team. And I sat there and I reflected at the end of the day. I nearly missed payroll, but I got that sorted. And as I was about to celebrate, this even bigger issue amounted where the biggest customer churns. It's putting strain on my raise. Mm. It's going to be hard to motivate investors. It's going to be so hard to get this thing off the table. I did not know whether to laugh, to cry, to celebrate, or wake up from this dream that I thought I was having. And to this day, that day, 24th of May, 2022, will never make sense to me. Because you have all the things. Extremes. Extremes of like, yes, cash hit the bank, let's roll. To money off the table from one of your biggest customers. And if it happened on two or three separate days, it would have probably made sense. But it's so hard to reconcile that. 24th of May, 2022. How have you guys progressed since? Look, the raise had taken a little bit longer than we anticipated. Um, we've gotten back to the levels revenue-wise of where we were tracking with that customer. Um, we've also learned about concentration risk. Mm. So my fundamental rule is that I want us to have a position where the business has no single customer that accounts for more than 10% of our revenue, mm. just so that we build in that buffer on how, you know, our revenues are basically insured. Um, but the team has pushed. Um, we really have pushed. As a result, we had doubled down on some of our uh, other product offerings. So mm. instead of just focusing on home to work rides, yeah. we launched our charter service and our full day and half day hire service. So we've gone back to those uh, pre-revenue, pre, I won't mention the company's name, but yeah. the pre-churn uh, uh, days. Um, and so, yeah, we, 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 we soldiering on. Um, at the end of that financial year, we were up 3x uh, mm. from the previous year, which is still good. Um, it does not help that there's a global recession and yeah. there's a venture winter, but, you know, we're resilient. We put in our hard yards and I think we have a great team that understands the big picture. So building a company and trying to have a personal life how has the business affected your personal life and how do you balance the two? That's a, that's a hectic question. As a young entrepreneur, I kind of tied my identity uh, to Lula. So regardless of whatever I had achieved in high school, university, what I studied, my identity was really stuck with Lula for a long time. And as a result, whenever the business failed, 
I felt like I failed. Mm. Um, whenever a ride did not go according to plan, I felt mm. like I didn't go according to plan. Mm. Whenever our revenues weren't at the level I thought they should be at, I felt insecure. Um, so the identity issue had played its part. Uh, but obviously you grow and you mature. And what I then thought about was, how can I divorce myself from the business? Because at the end of the day, even on paper, I'm just an employee and a director of the business. I am not the business. And so two things I picked up quite meaningfully. I've always been quite an avid football or soccer player mm. uh, from a very young age. And so I joined a club in Cape Town that is in a competitive league. And so we play three, four times a week. Um, and really that helped me think of uh, adding value in a different capacity and not just using my mind and my, let's call it charm and negotiation skills, but using my physical body to achieve the literal and figurative goal. Um, so really having my identity beyond the business really helped. Um, so, you know, maybe on one day your customers are churning, but you made it to the quarterfinal of the Knockout Cup with your soccer club. Uh, another aspect is um, I had, uh, and, and again, personal information, I, I suffered from a thing called obstructive sleep apnea. Mm. Um, and I uh, had three surgeries already wow. uh, done, yeah. So quite some severe surgeries. And in the process, I asked myself, you know, God, if I have another chance to live this life, what would I do differently? And I thought about the one thing that I found too difficult to do as a child um, that was play piano. Mm. And so I picked up piano about two years ago and I've really found a labor of love in music, playing piano, music production, as well as sports that's helped me build an identity outside of Lula. Um, and of course, having positions like sitting on the board for City of Johannesburg and at the CSIR as well has helped me realize that even if all doesn't go well at Lula, there is still life for Velani Mboweni outside of this. And that's helped me keep a sober mind. Um, doesn't stop me from panicking, admittedly, yeah. but it still keeps me aware that life is not always about Lula. Mm. You've talked to me a lot about your faith. Seems like your faith's really important to you. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so I'm Christian, um, Pentecostal, evangelical, however you want to uh, refer to us as. Mm. And, and I think I've had the real privilege of seeing God's faithfulness in my life. Mm. Um, I've seen many miracles uh, performed. Uh, my mother um, was in ICU uh, for COVID on a ventilator. She had seen many of the people in the ward next to her have conversations with them. A few minutes later, they passed away. They get wheeled out and my mother was supposed to die. By the grace of God, she was healed immediately. Uh, she's still alive today. Uh, my late grandfather had a stroke, a severe stroke. He recovered miraculously. I had a case where my MCL had torn, uh, which is a nine-month injury. I was prayed over, healed instantly. Um, and I've always believed that where God guides, he provides. And even just looking at Lula as a company, there's no way that in my personal capacity, I could have built something like this on my own. Um, the amount of faith, that has been required to get to this point, the investments we've achieved against all odds. In fact, most of our rounds we've raised in terrible economic times, COVID-19, recessions, etc. Like it, it's only but for the grace of God. 
Um, my family, again, uh, parents are married, grandparents were married, both sets for over 60 years. They really showed me about the importance of trusting in God. And, and I know, of course, it's not always an easy thing to talk about in the secular world. Mm-hmm. You know, speaking about specific faiths in communities that may not subscribe to your faith may either isolate you or, um, or actually welcome you. Uh, but I still believe that my faith is critical to who I am. Um, I think I do my best and God does the rest. Mm. How do you balance faith out in a world of tech where, you know, like I'm, I'm Christian as well, I'm yeah. Pentecostal as well. And um, balancing that with like building your company and like the values you guys set as an organization. Mm. Look, I think, I think the one thing that faith has helped me do is, is be principled. Because whether someone is of one faith that's different to yours, being a principled person is something that stands across all faiths. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the beauty about the life we live, mm-hmm. everyone knows the difference between right and wrong. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows what's a good decision, what's a bad decision, mm-hmm. what's a popular decision, and what is the right decision. And I think having had my faith has always ensured that I do things in a disciplined way, mm-hmm. I don't cut corners, keep things above board and always honor my word. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing that I think has actually helped us stand apart because transportation is a very complicated industry, uh, very complicated. And so we, we do our best to stand by our principles and execute with distinction. Mm. Um, all right, we're gonna switch to some fun quick fire question. Um, you love football uh, is what I'm hearing. Yeah. Very important question, Messi or Ronaldo? For me, this is an easy question. Yeah? Uh, it's a very easy question. Um, Answer correctly, please. There, there's only one goat, and uh, that goat is uh, Cristiano Ronaldo. Hey, Duavera. give me a hand. That's it. Thank you. That's Thank it. you. And that's really because I think h- hard work beats talent any single day. Mm. Um, hard work beats talent. Uh, and Ronaldo, at 38, is disciplined. He works hard, regards what anyone says. And no shade against Messi. I think Messi is great talent. He has, I mean, his size gives him a lower center of gravity, which naturally means he'll beat a lot of the defenders. Uh, but Ronaldo's just shown that hard work is, uh, is key. And uh, I value hard work and I value someone who just stands on their principle. Um, and he's, I think, yeah, he, he seems quite gracious and principled in everything that he does. So you've been to many African countries. Today we're in Senegal. Um, what's your favorite African dish? Look, I think I, I'd always battle between the, the battle between Ghana Jollof and Nigerian Jollof. But being in Dakar, Senegal showed me that Ghana and Nigeria are really just fighting for second place mm. because Senegalese Jollof is the alpha. Um, so I would definitely say some Senegalese Jollof, some uh, Ghanaian fried plantain, mm. Uh, and probably some brovos from South Africa. Wow. Uh, I'm a Pan-Africanist. What's, so my what's dish brovos? It's uh, literally translated means fa- farmer sausage. Okay. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a type of beef sausage. Yeah. Uh, you can get in beef or lamb. So I think uh, brovos, uh, particularly what we call bride meat. So bride is a barbecue. Yeah. Um, so I'd have some bride brovos, some fried plantain from mm. Ghana, and... Uh, we call it chips in Senegal, in Senegal. So mm. that, that Senegalese jollof uh, and a nice together. cold Fanta orange. Mm. Yeah. Yo, this guy didn't even mention a single East African dish <laughs> and call himself Pan-African. Okay, Nyama Choma. We can put some Nyama Choma <laughs> on the plate, man. 
<laughs> there we go. There we go. He had to balance it out. Balance yeah. it out was one thing. Um, cool. Another quick fire question. Um, favorite city in the world? Apart from South Africa, any place in South Africa? Hmm. That is, that is a very hard question. Um, favorite city in the entire world? You know, I really liked Singapore. Mm. Um, I liked Singapore because of how organized it is. I liked the food. Um, and I, and I liked the story of Singapore under the leadership of Lee Kuan Yew. Um, I really liked Singapore. Um, I would definitely also add, um, there's a place in Spain called Marbella. Mm. Um, I went there with my family back in 2010. Mm. Nice coastal city, very quiet and just really, like beautiful. I like to hang out in cities that are very quiet and not mm. too busy. Um, so I'd say, yeah, Singapore, Marbella, Spain. Um, yeah, those are my, my favorite cities. Of course, Cape Town, without saying. But yeah, uh, yeah those are my favorite cities. Uh, do you have uh, any any uh, people that, uh, if you were to meet, that really inspire you in the tech space and you had to pick to have dinner with two of them? Which two would you pick? In the tech space? Look, there's one who was on my bucket list that I actually had the privilege of hosting for dinner. Wow. Um, yeah, so that was actually Ben Horvitz. You met uh, Ben Horvitz? Yeah, back in California, 2020. Wow. Uh, January 2020, um, through the Harambians. Uh, it was very, very great. So Ben Horvitz from Andreessen Horvitz. I would say, as it stands right now, I would love to have a conversation with... Um, I'd love to have a conversation with Travis Kalanick from Uber, actually, mm. or former Uber. Um, yeah, just understanding just some of the things he, he had done um, and how he built the business he's built. Um, I would definitely love to have a conversation with, um, I mean, Elon, for sure. Yeah. Um, but I think if I just had to narrow it down onto tech, like, yeah, I'll just say Elon. Yeah, let's do Elon. Elon and Travis. Yeah, Elon and Travis. Nice. Hopefully they don't fight each other, but uh, <laughs> Elon and Travis would be good. Um, yeah, and again, these are, let's, I'd say, people I haven't already had the privilege to engage with over dinner. Vilani, what matters to you most in life and why? Yeah. Three things. Faith, family, and happiness. And my happiness would originate from the thing I hate the most. I hate poverty. I hate crippling poverty. And I would really love to see a world where ordinary people can fundamentally live better or have a better quality of life. And that's what matters to me. So if I have my faith in order, my family as well, I can truly be happy seeing ordinary people live better lives. Um, that's what matters to me most. Wow. Ladies and gentlemen, you heard it here first. Uh, Vilani Boweni, the co-founder and CEO of uh, Lula, all the way from South Africa. Vilani, really inspired by your journey and what you've built. Uh, and I'm excited for where this is going to go and everything that you're going to do in your career and your lifetime. 
So thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks, and thank baby. you for building the continent through technology. Anytime. God bless. Cheers. Take care. And ladies and gentlemen, that's a wrap. Stay tuned for more Build Our Africa speaker series coming up. Don't forget to, I'm supposed to say this, but I'm really lame at saying it. Like and subscribe to the channel, blah, blah, blah. Thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you in the next episode. Cheers.